We're talking this morning about the third of the four R's. We've had the return of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and this morning we're going to talk about the great reckoning and the renewal of all things. It's no surprise by now to you, I guess, that I love my technology. Not that I'm a techno geek. Uh, I actually don't care much about the inner workings of the computer. I just like the kinds of things that it can do for me. And in particular, I like my laptop and uh, the things that the power that it has to help me do my work, to store my pictures, uh, to run most of my life, actually. And so you understand how distressed I was one day a couple of years ago when I came home from a, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip to Rome. I'd been to a conference there, had the opportunity to, to uh, go to a fantastic conference and to visit all of the remarkable sites in Rome. I'd taken my camera, of course, and taken many, many pictures of all of these uh, just amazing places uh, in Italy. And I came home and I settled down on the lounge. I made a coffee for myself and my net. I got the laptop out, all the pictures loaded on, <laughs> deleted from the camera, stored on the laptop. And we sat on the lounge there, ready to go through the pictures, and I was going to share the stories and tell the stories. And Noah, our son, was very excited as well. Dad was back after some time away. And he was standing on the lounge, on the, the, the arm of the lounge. And in his excitement, he jumped off. Hooray, Dad! And knocked the laptop with his arm and sent it crashing to the ground and smash. There went the laptop and the pictures on it. So what do you do with a ruined treasure? Well, you try to salvage it, don't you? That's what I tried to do desperately. I tried my best with my limited technological skill. I sent it off to people to have a look at, to see if they could recover the pictures, and the answer came back, no salvage possible. So what do you do with a ruined treasure like that that has... All the capabilities of the technology and the treasured pictures, and it is just unsalvageable. Well, that's something like the predicament that God found himself in. Not unforeseen, of course, in his sovereign plan. God knew exactly how things would turn out. But that's the predicament God found himself in, in the face of human sin. A masterpiece that he had handcrafted his creation. Humanity as the pinnacle of that creation, designed in God's image to rule over the rest of the creation. And yet through the sad stupidity of human sin, a ruined masterpiece, a ruined treasure. And the question for this morning is, what was God's response? What has God done about his ruined treasure? Before we look at God's response, though, we need to understand a little bit more about the sad stupidity of human sin. Jeremiah puts it like this. Uh, I think this is a wonderful, though, tragic description of sin. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. You see what God is saying there through the prophet Jeremiah, that sin is like? This is the nature of all sin. We have turned our backs on God, the source of all life and joy and happiness and hope and love, 
and we've turned to other things except their cracked systems. They can't hold any water. When he's the fountain of living water, that's the nature of all sin, isn't it? We turn our backs on God and we look for our fulfilment and our life and our meaning in other things. And yet those things can't satisfy without God. And when we do that, we end up not just being guilty, but also being stuck in sin. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like everyone else. You see, there's two points here and then a summary. Paul is saying that outside of Christ, when we turn away from God, the fountain of all living water, and we seek out systems for ourselves, we become guilty perpetrators of sin. We're responsible before God for our own undoing. You see, he says there, you are dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. You chose this way of life. You were responsible for it. You were following the course of this world. You were following the ruler of the power of the air. You were following the desires of flesh and senses, he says, three times following three things, the world, the ruler, uh, the world, the ruler of this world, that is the devil, and the desires of the flesh. You were guilty and responsible for your guilt before God, and therefore you were dead, he says, utterly unable to save yourself. But there's even more to it than that. It's even worse than that. It's not just that we were guilty, responsible for our sin. It's also that outside of Christ, we are helpless captives of sin. Uh, you might remember what Jesus says about this in John 8, where he says, Whoever sins becomes what? A slave to sin. Strong language, isn't it? And Paul has the same thing here. You were following the course of this world. You were following the ruler of the power of the air. You were following the desires of the flesh and senses. Humanity, Adam, was created to rule the world under God. And yet here three times we're following the world. We were under the power of the Spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. He's talking about the evil one. That's the situation of humanity under sin. Guilty and stuck. When Ella, our four-year-old, was a few years younger, when she was a two-year-old, she got into this habit of uh, refusing to obey. That's pretty common for two-year-olds. Uh, but when she'd refuse to obey, then, no, I won't eat my dinner. No, I won't pick up my clothes. No, I won't do what you're saying. And she'd work herself into, up into such a state in her disobedience that she'd run down the hallway, out of the kitchen or the lounge room, wherever she was being disobedient, and she'd run into her bedroom, and in anger she'd slam the door behind her. Except the handle of the door was up there, and she was down there. And so... For a while, you'd hear her kicking and screaming and yelling and making an angry noise in the bedroom. And then after a few minutes, you'd hear it turn into a whimper. And I, Daddy? <laughs> Mommy? 
What do you do at that point as a parent of a two-year-old? Is this little one guilty? Absolutely. Brazen disobedience. She could look you in the eye and say, no, Dad. Is she also a helpless little two-year-old stuck in her room with the door locked, unable to get out? Yes, just as much and at the same time. And that's the Bible's description of humanity and sin. Guilty, black, responsible, and also helpless, stuck, victims of a power greater than ourselves. And so when you sum all of that up, Paul says, outside of Christ, we were, by nature, children of wrath, deserving to be condemned. Like a great old Victorian mansion that was glorious when it was created. Now, through years of abuse or neglect, has become old and decrepit and cracked and falling down. And the council goes to inspect it and whacks up a sign, condemned. There's nothing we can do about this place. It's, it can't be restored. It's, it's a building of wrath. <laughs> it needs to be knocked down. And the question is, was that God's response to humanity? What was God to do with his ruined treasure? I'll turn over the page. And the great news of this morning, the great news that God has for us in the gospel, is that in Jesus God has found a way to condemn our sin, but set us free. To condemn our sin, but set us free. So that we can stand before him on the judgment day in hope. Without fear. Let's look at some of the details. It's already there in the Old Testament. Another way of talking about this is that God has found a way to bring salvation through judgment. To condemn our sin, but to set us free. You see it already at the time of Noah in the story of the flood. Where, well as it says, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. What a damning assessment of humankind at the time of Noah. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see, God is going to cleanse the earth of evil. He's going to judge the earth. And yet in the midst of that, God finds a way to bring salvation through judgment. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favour in the sight of the Lord. It says later that Noah was righteous, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. But it's not because Noah was righteous that God chose him. It's the other way around. God chose him. God, he found favour in God's sight, and therefore he was righteous. And he walked with God, and he was blameless in his generation. And so when the judgment came and the earth was cleansed of evil, there was one place where the judgment didn't fall. One place where there was safety from the, within, in the midst of the judgment and it was in Noah's ark where Noah and his family were preserved and all the animals with them. And God brought salvation through that judgment. You see the same pattern of salvation being brought through judgment, but more developed in the prophets. 
uh, in the passage that was read to us in Isaiah 52, where Isaiah is speaking about the servant of the Lord, uh, who in Isaiah is a, a strange figure. Now, sometimes the servant of the Lord is Israel. Sometimes the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is a figure, a person within Israel. Uh, and it's only when we get to the New Testament that we see the identity of this servant of the Lord. But in Isaiah, we have this same pattern of salvation being brought through judgment. But now it's not just that one man is saved while others are condemned, as at the time of Noah. It's that one man, his servant of the Lord, is condemned in place of the others. Isaiah makes this so clear. Chapter 53, verse 4. He has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. You see this continual contrast. One man condemned, the servant of the Lord, in the place of the others, so that they might go free. By his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so therefore, down in verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous. How? Well, he shall bear their iniquities. One man condemned in the place of the others. Judgment will fall on this one so that others might be saved. There will be salvation brought through judgment. You see, what Isaiah is speaking about here is that God has found a way to condemn sin and yet set us free, to bring salvation through judgment. As I said in Isaiah, it's unclear who this servant will be. But by the time we get to the New Testament, it's crystal clear. Because what the New Testament writers proclaim from Matthew through to Revelation is that in Jesus, God has found a way to condemn our sin and yet set us free. Like everything that we're hoping for, there's a now and a not yet aspect to it. I want to explore the now aspect of this judgment first and then the not yet aspect uh, in a few minutes' time. Jesus brings salvation through judgment. Our sin was condemned in him. Have a look to begin with at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 there, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that they didn't deserve it. All of us outside of Christ are guilty and stuck, as we've seen. But there is therefore, Paul says now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that be? Why is that the case? We look in verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. That is, God condemned sin in his flesh, in Jesus' flesh. And so because he has been condemned, because sin has been condemned in him, we can go free. So there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I wonder how well you've applied that truth to yourself. Now, I imagine some of you here have been hearing that truth for the last 20, 30, 50, 70 years. What do you do when Satan brings to mind your sins and your failures? 
What do you do when you feel guilt for past sins? How do you deal with that in your experience of the Christian life? What you need to do is to take it to the cross, to remember this verse, that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. Why? Because God has already condemned that sin which Satan is bringing to your attention. God has already condemned that sin in Jesus on the cross. So that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. Notice how strong that is. It's not just a little bit of condemnation. It's there is no condemnation. God has condemned our sin in Jesus so that we can go free. But remember, our sin problem was more than just that we were guilty. It's also that we were stuck. And the great news is that in Jesus, God has found a way to set us free from being stuck in sin as well. This is a little bit more complicated. So have a look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, there's the idea, has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's not talking about two laws here, as if there's one law about uh, one law of the spirit of life and another law of sin and death. He's talking about one law, the law of God, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, which has two effects, two outcomes. This is very clear in Deuteronomy, isn't it? When Moses lays the law before the people and says, See, I have set before you today what? Life and death. Blessings and curses. That was always how the law was designed when God gave it to his people. If they would obey, life. If they would disobey, death and curses. And what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus and by the Spirit, God has set us free from, from the condemning effect of the law so that the law can have its life-giving effect for us. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. How does that work? Well, Paul tells us more earlier on. Uh, I haven't printed this one for you, but in chapter 7 of Romans, you remember he talks about the law in those terms. He says the law itself was good and holy and just. It was a, a gracious gift from God. It was designed to give life to the people. It wasn't a burden, but it was designed to be a joy, and yet because of sin it ended up bringing death to the people of Israel. Why? Because they couldn't obey it. Why? Because they disobeyed God. And so the law ended up bringing condemnation and death for them. And in the wonderful wisdom of God that was exactly the way God designed it. Look at Romans 5.20, I printed there for you, where it says, But the law came in with the result that, or it should be stronger than that actually, it's so that, this was God's intention for the law, the law came in so that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Who was given the law? The people of Israel. The law came in so that the trespass multiplied. So where did sin increase? In Israel. God gave the law, and because of sin, uh, the law was broken. And so sin increased and multiplied in Israel. You think, why would God want to do that? Why would God want to increase, multiply sin in Israel? Well, it's so that he could deal with it. And you see that what has happened in Romans 8 verse 3 is that God has now done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, the law is kind of like a magnifying glass. You remember as a kid, perhaps, getting a magnifying glass on a hot summer's day and taking a leaf, or maybe you're an ant if you're that way inclined, but let's say a leaf, and, uh, and you, you take it under the sun and you concentrate the power, the rays of the sun, down onto the leaf, onto one small point. And the enormous power of the sun, concentrated like that through the magnifying glass, would burn a hole, if you're patient enough, would burn a hole in the leaf. And Paul is saying that that is what God has done in the law. In giving the law to Israel, so that sin would increase in Israel as they disobeyed the law, God concentrated sin in Israel so that one man in Israel, Israel's representative and leader, Israel's Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, could bear that concentrated sin and God could condemn it in him on the cross. God has done, verse 3, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What could the law not do? The law couldn't condemn sin. The law couldn't set them free from sin. But God has done, by his own Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, as a fully human being, to deal with sin. And there, in Jesus, on the cross, he condemned sin, with the effect that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is, God's ultimate intention for the law might be fulfilled, that we might walk in life and peace with God might be fulfilled in us who work not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so you see what God has done is not just condemn sin and therefore let guilty perpetrators go free because our guilt has been dealt with. He has also found a way to set us free from the power of sin because sin has been condemned and its power has been broken. And so now we can walk free, no longer under the power of sin, Jesus is saying in John 8 there, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That doesn't apply to you if you are in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free from sin. You have God's Spirit at work in you so that you can live a new life. And Paul goes on to develop that in the rest of Romans 8, which we don't have time to look at. But if you read later on through Romans 8, the, the whole point is that you have been set free from sin. Free from a guilt and also free from its power. We just sang about it, didn't we? May the water and the blood be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and set me free from its power. God has found a way to walk down the hallway to forgive our sins and to open the door so that we can run back up the hallway and give him a cuddle, <laughs> if I can use that language and live with him in peace. So if you're someone who knows your sin and knows your guilt before God, then you need to hear this message. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even more than that, God has found a way to set you free from the power of sin in your life. He has given you his spirit. He has set you free from sin so that you can now live his way. That's judgment now in Jesus, actually judgment back then. There's another aspect of judgment now that I want to touch on just very briefly. Where Paul says in Romans chapter 1 here, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. 
which is for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our sin has been condemned in him so that we can go free. But for those who are not in Christ Jesus, whose faith is not in him, they are still walking in sin and are therefore under God's wrath. And Paul says we see some of the effects of that in the present. We see God's wrath being executed even now in anticipation of the final judgment. You see it particularly in verses 23 and 26 and 28, where Paul says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. He's talking about idolatry, which these days comes in different forms. Nobody's worshipping birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles, at least in Australia, or at least not many. Uh, but there's still plenty of idolatry around us, isn't there? <coughs> Therefore God gave them up. You see... The form that God's judgment is taking in the present, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. Again, verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to the degrading passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Three times Paul stresses this, that those who are outside of Christ, who are walking in sin and disobedience to God, God Part of his judgment on them is to give them over to sin, to not restrain them from sinning as much as he might, so that they experience the devastating effects of sin in their lives and their relationships. And we see that all around us, don't we? And some of us can tell stories about that in our own lives, the devastating effects of sin before we came to Christ. That's the now aspect of the judgment. But there's also a not yet. There's still judgment to come. Have a look over the page. I've got three points here. First, Jesus says very clearly, uh, and this is also elsewhere in the New Testament, that all will be raised for the judgment. Do not be astonished at this, Jesus says, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. That's the resurrection. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. You see, the Lord will come, that's the return of the King. The dead will be raised, that's the resurrection. And then there will be the day of reckoning. The most important thing to know about the day of reckoning, and if you take one thing away from this morning, make it this. The most important thing to know about that day is that the criteria of the judgment will be whether you are in Christ or not. The most important thing about that day is whether you are in Christ or not. We've seen already in Romans 8, 1 there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the judgment of that great day has been brought forward and Jesus bore the judgment in our place on the cross. So that as we look forward to that day of judgment, we can look forward in hope, without fear, knowing that our sin has been condemned in him. I say that on the American prairies, uh, in the days of the Wild West, when they were first settling North America, and as they were heading across from the East Coast, that often there would be massive prairie fires uh, that would take light, and then spread across the prairie at an alarming rate with the wind behind them. And if you were there, a stockman with your, your family and your caravans, uh, uh, riding on your horse, and you'd see the smoke from the fire in the background. The stockman learnt a 
I don't know if they're called stock in America, are they? What are they called in America? The ranchers? The cowboys. The cowboys. Oh, yeah, the cowboys. Learned a trick, which was when you see the fire burning behind you, you do what might seem strange at first, is you take a match and you light up the brush in front of you. And with the wind at your back, a new fire starts in front of you and flames away into the distance, spurred on by uh, the wind. You know, I think that's a strange thing to do when you've got, now you've got fire behind you and fire in front of you. You're just making the problem worse. But what they'd then do is, because the fire was moving so quickly, is they'd walk over the threshold of where they'd begun the fire. And behind them would be brush and trees and grass ready to burn. And in front of them would be already burnt trees and grass. And they'd stand there and huddle there with their family and their caravan and their wives and their wife and their children. And as the fire bore down on them from behind, the great prairie fire, they'd be standing on this already burnt patch. And it'd be a fearsome thing because the fire would be coming at great pace, but when it would reach the patch, it would go around them. Because the fire can't burn in the same place twice. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. Our sin was condemned in him on the cross. And so if we find ourselves, if we're found in him on the last great day of judgment, the fire will not burn in the same place twice. And he is our refuge, as we've just sung. And we will be free from that judgment. That's the most important thing to say about the, the judgment day. There is another perspective on it, though, which is this. And at first glance, you'll think this is contradictory. And I want you to ask, how do these things fit together? Because they're there together in Scripture. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, where Paul says, For all of us, he's writing to Christians, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. That same idea is present in all of those passages that I've listed for you there. You can look them up perhaps later on. There is a judgment according to how we've lived. A judgment according to works. That each of us may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. And I hope you're thinking, how does that fit with the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because when I look at my life, it is scarred with sin. And we can think of the sin in our life. And I, I start to think if God judges my life according to my works, then I will fail the judgment. How do they, these two things fit together? They're both there in Scripture. Well, to start with, it's important to get right that it's not saying that we earn eternal life with God. It's not saying that God will reward us for good works with eternal life with Him. No, salvation is a free gift of God's grace. Uh, I'm just saying, could my zeal no respite know? How's the rest of that verse go? Could my sin Sorry? Could my tears forever flow? Could I, uh, with all of my efforts, my zeal, my tears, none of that could for sin atone? You must save God and you alone. That is wonderfully true. It's not that we earn our way. To eternal life. Nor is it that God kind of weighs up on scales the good things and the bad things in our lives, and if there's more good things than bad things, then we just scrape through. It's not saying that at all. What it is saying 
is just, it's a, just another way of saying that we will be judged in Christ. How does that fit? Well, like I've been saying, if we are in Christ, we have been set free from sin. And God is at work in us by his spirit. And so that will be demonstrated by the way that we live. If we are in Christ, when God judges our work, us by our works, by the way we've lived on the last great day, it will be clear from the way that we have lived that we are in Christ. You're thinking, is it clear in my life? I'm not saying it will be clear in the fact that we've lived a perfect life. No way. The New Testament is very clear that Christians continue to struggle with sin. But there is all the difference in the world between a life of sin without repentance and sin without repentance and sin without repentance. That's a life outside of Christ, isn't it? All the difference in the world between that life and this life, this is my life, I trust it's yours as well if you're in Christ, a life of sin with repentance and sin with repentance and love and sin with repentance and generosity because God's Spirit is at work in us. Not that the repentance or the love or the generosity or the fruit of the Spirit that God is working in us earns us salvation. No way. It's a free gift of God. But that those things demonstrate the fact that God has set us free from sin. They demonstrate the fact that we are in Christ. And so when God judges our lives, the sin and the repentance and the generosity and the faithfulness and the sin and the repentance and the whole lot, that is a life in Christ. And there's all the difference in the world between that life and the life of sin without repentance, which is a life outside of Christ. So you see, I hope, how those two fit together. The one criteria that matters on the last day is whether you are in Christ or not. And that will be clear when God judges our lives according to our works. We do need to take this as a warning, though, don't we? There is no room for presuming on God's grace. There's no room for somebody calling themselves a Christian and saying, oh, thank you, God, Jesus died for me, now I can go and sin to my heart's content because my sins are covered in Jesus. That is not a Christian life. There is no such thing as an unchanged Christian. Because if you're in Christ, God has given you, your, you His Spirit and He is working in you to change you and make you more like Jesus. Not perfectly, still struggling, still sin with repentance and sin with repentance, but yet a changed life. I want to say though something to those who may have tender consciences. Because like some of us need to hear that warning. That's one end of the spectrum. Others of us need to hear the very clear word that the only criteria on the day of judgment is whether you are in Christ or not. And when God judges you and he sees even your struggles with sin and your repentance and your weak efforts at love and service, God sees that as a life in Christ. A life not yet perfected, a life full of struggles and yet a life in Christ. And so even in your sin and your difficulties, he sees that you are walking in Christ because he has picked you up and saved you by his grace and included you in his son and filled you with his spirit. And so there is no condemnation on the day of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. I understand that can raise lots and lots of issues. And I'd love to chat to you about it in the stage of morning tea or at lunch today or perhaps in the question time. So now let me finish off uh, 
by having a look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 10. Uh, because we do need to say a word about the terrible fate of the condemned. Uh, we're not going to dwell here for a long time, but it is very clear in Scripture that not all will pass the judgment. That there are many, in fact, who will be condemned when Jesus comes. Paul puts it like this, For it's indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, he's writing to the believers in Thessalonica, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord. That's the worst punishment imaginable, isn't it? Because that's the presence of the Lord is what we were created for, to live with him eternally, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marvelled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. What you see here very clearly and all the way through Scripture is that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. There are those who know God and those who obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus and those who do not obey God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's very easy to lose sight of that in the messiness of life and to lose sight of the fact that from God's point of view, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. We've got some uh, friends uh, of ours uh, from a couple of different contexts in our lives. Uh, Trent and Charity is one couple. Uh, we've been getting to know them. They have been, become good friends of Charity. She's a mother of uh, one of the other kids in Noah's class at school. Lovely people. Really beautiful people. Good parents. Three kids, same ages as ours. They get on really well. He's a, a plumber, works hard at his job, uh, cares for his family. They go on their family holidays like we do, we share stories. And yet as far as I know, as far as we know, they do not know God. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And as we hang out with them and as we love them, it's very easy to forget that they do not know God and that they do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that the only place where there is no condemnation is in Christ. And they are not, as far as we know, in Christ, and that therefore awaiting them on the day of judgment is not a verdict of well done, good and faithful servant, but the terrible verdict of being cast out of God's presence. And I'm sure there are people like that who you know in your life. And passages like this deliver us back to that reality that all of us outside of Christ are guilty and stuck. And it's only in Christ that we can be free from the condemnation and free from the power of sin in our lives. And when I read passages like this, what it does is remind me that I need to be praying for my friends and looking out for my friends' opportunities to speak to them about the good news of what God has done for them in Jesus and sharing with them that news and calling on them to repent and to put their trust in Him. And I wonder if there are people in your life like that as well, people who perhaps God has brought into your life so that you can share the good news with them. 